Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's an eclectic selection on this podcast with three very different stories all told in our home venue, The Black Box in Belfast. It's not about pointing at potholes and getting your photograph taken for the local papers. It's about serious consideration of things that need to change. George Michael released Careless Whisper. And whenever, wherever I was and whoever I was with, I'd have to leave immediately because I didn't want them to see me cry or explain why. I still shudder when I hear it. Her right arm came out from behind her back and she raised her crooked hand pointing a bony finger at me. Come here. So we get a glimpse into the life of a politician, we get a listen to the soundtrack of a life, and we see loneliness through the eyes of a child who doesn't understand. So let's kick off and first up is a story from a first timer. The theme was Justice for All, it was December, and our event was part of the Human Rights Festival. Here's Rachel Woods. I will make a wild guess that most people in this room and outside have or know someone who's had an experience of domestic abuse. I know I have. It is rife across our society and it's getting worse. And we don't need to have statistics quoted us tonight, but behind each of the 33,000 reports to the PSNI last year, it is a person. And that's the ones that we know about. My first experience that I knew about domestic violence whenever a friend of mine was taken into hospital with a broken jaw, arm and shoulder. I was 15 at the time and I was in work with her. She told us at work that she'd fallen down the stairs. She had to get an operation and all whilst looking after her young child and going to work. The ex-partner started showing up to the workplace. He'd slashed her tires and tried to kidnap the child. Her brakes had been cut whenever she was inside. Later, my friend, leaving a long-term relationship with two children, ended up with no roof over her head because of the shortage of accommodation. Leaving their hometown to stay in a hostel, meaning they couldn't have had their children there. Asking me what I could do to help. Could I put them up in my house? Could I get them a roof over their head for tonight? Even for tomorrow night, but into the future? It's a really, really hard conversation to have. Years of abuse led a family member of mine to commit suicide but we were told that they died of cancer. And it's only recently that this has come out as what has actually happened. Trauma is handed down. Current work colleagues and friends have left toxic, harmful and coercive relationships, controlling finances and monitoring spend, some having had their phones and laptops monitored, stalked at work, stalked at university, mentally been beaten down. I am now what you might call a recovering politician, having hung my elected boots up only a few weeks ago after seven years. During the pandemic, I was an MLA representing North Down in Stormont for the Green Party. Um, It was what you could call functioning then. As MLAs, we had the opportunity to make and change laws. And the first bit of law introduced into the Assembly last mandate was the Domestic Abuse Bill, a very long-awaited piece of law that would finally make coercive control a criminal offence. It had been in development for years and I had the privilege to work on it and also to make fundamental changes to it, reflecting the voices of victims and survivors throughout. I looked to the family courts, to legal aid, 
to the barriers that victims were telling us existed. Some changes, I was told, would bankrupt the executive with the potential costs that a change to the legal aid system would mean if what I was proposing passed. The amount of money that could be paid out to victims and survivors of domestic abuse would be in the billions. Guess what? Wasn't. Um, and also, if that's how much they'd estimated being paid out of victims of domestic abuse being dragged through the family courts, then we have a much bigger problem than we could ever understand. But lived experience was being told to legislators. And I remember sitting there now in my 30s, thinking about all those people who I knew that had been through exactly what we were talking about. But it was put to us in a really impersonal black and white text, talking about A and B, the impact of A's behaviour on B, and if A and B had a child, no, these were people, these were my friends, these were my family's members, and it needed to change. So the reason for trying this, though, was to reflect on what we were being told in law, that the family courts were an arena for the continuation of domestic abuse. Women were telling us how they were being dragged through the system, often at great expense, by their abusers, over custody, over protecting their children and themselves from previous relationships. My friend that I referred to earlier, she was dragged through the courts for years. Every single thing that her ex could think of, accusations made against her, her family and friends turned away, and thousands of pounds spent on, spent on defending herself. So many had told their story and their experience, and it was only right that changes were to be made. And we didn't achieve everything um, and in that bill that I was talking about, but as we know, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So what do you do when one option closes, one avenue's closed office, you open another? So I decided I was going to make my own law. So paid time off work for victims and survivors of abuse to attend hospital, to attend medical appointments, to court, to escape the home, to make your family and children safe, to go to therapy, not to worry about losing holiday pay, to go off on sick leave, which we know is woefully inadequate, to maybe lose your job if you don't come in. That's what my law was for to try and make yourself safe, no questions asked. It was to instill a culture of belief and to make employment rights here better. And up to recently when I went to work, and I was a chef up until a couple of weeks ago, the only options that I had to take time off work was to go on the sick or take holidays. But if you didn't have any left, then it was unpaid leave if you could get permission. And realistically, no one can afford to be off long term on statutory sick pay. So what if there's an incident of abuse? And say it's physical and you need to go to the hospital or if you need to get access therapy, you might be waiting for hours, days or weeks to be seen. What if you wanted to speak to the police and make a report? What if you wanted to go and get some advice? You can't get into work because of that. And what if it's not the first time this has happened and you might be on your final written warning? Your work has no domestic abuse policy or even awareness of it or even, let alone, any HR department for you to go and speak to or that you won't be taken seriously. And that's what I knew and was being told what was happening. So if I could try and get something in law for an added layer of protection um, onto a bill, I needed a, good, I needed a vehicle to do so, but the current one I was working on didn't meet scope. A good excuse for not doing, things in more, not doing more things, in my opinion. So myself and my researcher chatted about this in my office. We wanted to bring in the laws to change the planning system, how very exciting, um, or on trees, you know, typical Green Party. But we looked at, at each other and said, shall we try it? We'll give it a go. So we did. And if the ministers and government won't, then we would. So we had a year before the election and we got to work. 
On the last day of the last mandate, a number of what's called private members' bills were passed. It's when an individual like myself got a piece of legislation through. It was a day for celebration. We had Pat Catney's period products bill, Claire Bailey's safe access zones bill, and mine, introducing 10 days paid leave for victims of domestic abuse, all passed in the space of about four hours. There was a missed opportunity of a photograph instalment of the absolute elation whenever they all passed, the culmination of years of work complete, but no, just the beginning. I believe that the role of a legislator and a policymaker is about challenge and also finding different and maybe alternative avenues in which to operate. It's not about pointing at potholes and getting your photograph taken for the local papers. It's about serious consideration of things that need to change about pursuing a rights-based system, about tackling disadvantage and enabling support. Demand better from those who can do things, who can make the change if they ever come back. There is so much that can be done because if a wee girl chef from down the road can make a law in a year, then so can they. Thanks so much, Rachel. Politics loss was our gain. What a great story. Thank you. Well done. I hope you'll be back with more stories soon. We're always looking for new storytellers at 10 by 9 so if you'd like to tell your first story, like Rachel, then get in touch at the 10 by 9 website. Even if it's just a smidgen of an idea, I'll help you bring it all together. Looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, let's get on to our next story, and first, a little context. Paul Bond had just returned from telling a story at 10 by 9 Nashville, the first 10 by 9 offspring, by the way, so that will help make sense of his opening remarks. Take it away, Paul. Sorry, uh, just before I start, I, I was at pains to point out to the lovely people in Nashville that their wonderful event was really a pale imitation of this one. <laughs> so if you'd all just wave your hands so I can get a selfie and annoy them with it. Thank you. And that doesn't count as part of my time. Okay. <laughs> Music is spiritual, emotional, enables time travel, and is simply magic. My magical music career has had three distinct phases. My granda, Frank Sally, was a naturally gifted musician. He'd had no musical training whatsoever when, age 21 at a Cayley in a neighbor's house in Scotstown, he picked up a fiddle and played the song that had just been played perfectly. When he had children of his own, he was convinced that with music lessons and encouragement from an early age, they would surpass his musical talents. He bought them all tiny fiddles, paid for lessons, and was hugely disappointed to discover that my mother and her siblings did not have a single note in their heads between them. Then we came along, and he convinced himself that his musical talent must have skipped a generation, and that my brothers and I would be musical prodigies. I was nine, John was six, and Stephen was three. It was 1976, and our familiarity with music extended only to Top of the Pops, and my favourite artists were Mud, the Bay City Rollers, and the Wombles. I didn't even know what a fiddle was, and after being presented with one, rather wish that I still didn't. That winter of 76 will be remembered for Wednesday night music lessons in Ballinode Hall and forced practice immediately before the next lesson, most of which was spent rosining the bow. We were great bow rosiners. (laughs) 
thankfully, my mother recognised our frustration and complete lack of ability, and the little fiddles were quietly slid under the bed in the spare room. This concluded phase one. It left no physical scars, but I twitch now whenever our cat tuna cries as it makes the same sound I did playing the fiddle. My parents' record collection extended from ABBA all the way to Demi Russo, with nothing in between except a now very un-PC black and white minstrel show album. It was in our neighbour's house with my friend Adrian and the older Turley girls, Kitty and Denise, that I discovered the Kinks, Fleetwood Mac and the Human League. At school, Father La Flynn introduced us to Jean-Michel Jarre's Oxygen and Bruce Springsteen's The River, which we loved as it meant we weren't singing hymns. My schoolmates introduced me to David Bowie and Led Zeppelin, largely thanks to their own older brothers, and I discovered The Police all on my own and bought Regatta de Blanc, my very first album, and all subsequent Police and Sting albums. My parents bought a new super-duper record player with a built-in tape deck and an FM radio, and in celebration bought two more albums, Boney M's Greatest Hits <laughs> and Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. This meant I could have the old Pie record player in my room and I would just play Led Zeppelin 4 on repeat. Two of my friends, Milo and Shane, had a band called Rain, consisting of Milo on guitar and Shane also on guitar. <laughs> They listened to the Eagles, Simon and Garfunkel and Don McLean and wrote their own songs, usually about Shane's latest unrequited love. I Love You Karen and Oh My Lorraine being particularly memorable. <laughs> Singing I Love You Karen on stage at the St. Louis Convent Christmas concert as a surprise for Karen, surrounded as she was by 300 other convent girls, did not endear Shane to her in any way that he had hoped. The second phase of my music career began in September 1983 when Shane and Milo tried to teach me how to play guitar. I remember carrying their suitcases, their guitar suitcases, up two flights of stairs to the school music room with wild enthusiasm. My guitar career lasted three whole weeks. I was absolutely hopeless, but I had impressed the boys with my guitar carrying capabilities and they made me their manager. Management of Rain consisted of guitar case carrying and recording them on C60 tapes. Shane was a year older than Milo and I, so he left the school and headed off to be a priest in September 1984, and Rain was no more. The third most magical and current phase of my musical career has involved simply going to concerts or gigs, buying vinyl records again, despite not having a record player, buying band tees, which are now called merch, and collecting signed band picture or music sheets. My soulmate fears for our mortgage, as I have made it my mission to single-handedly keep the music industry going. <laughs> my tastes have evolved, but if I hear Simple Minds, don't you forget about me, I immediately picture myself as the Judd Nelson character in The Breakfast Club, rebelling against the tyranny of oppression in Monaghan by wearing maroon-coloured slip-ons and my dad's Macintosh trench coat to the school Cayley. <laughs> Music is time travel. 
My friend Mickey and I made a mixtape which featured Marvin Gaye's sexual healing. And whenever it pops up on the radio, I'm back with Mickey cycling the three miles out from Monaghan to Hollywood Lake, where we'd spend the day looking really cool, not talking to a single girl on the shore of the lake and having nothing with us except chicken sandwiches, a portable tape recorder, that mixtape and an extra set of batteries. New Orders Blue Monday catapults me to the dance floor of the Hillgrove Hotel on a Saturday night and we'd be there as soon as it opened at 10.30pm to get our money's worth and because we wouldn't be let in anywhere else in the town. And most weeks, Luby Smith, Mickey and myself would be the only ones who would dance to that amazing 12-inch that no one could really dance to, but that didn't matter because we couldn't dance anyway. My soulmate and I have known each other since we were 16. We had interregnums in our relationship until we were 21, but have been together ever since. But during one of those early schisms, George Michael released Careless Whisper. And whenever, wherever I was and whoever I was with, I'd have to leave immediately because I didn't want them to see me cry or explain why. I still shudder when I hear it. Music is so incredibly powerful and wonderful. I'm fortunate to have friends who are similarly dedicated to it. My friend Baz regularly rings me or messages me and simply says, 3 Arena, Wednesday, 8pm, and I go, sometimes not even knowing who or what we're going to. This has led to amazing evenings seeing Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Radiohead, Public Service Broadcasting, Seagor Ross, and most recently, Boy Genius. I buy a tea at every gig, and these now form large and very cool parts of my son Jake and my daughter Robin's wardrobes. Last year, I underwent chemo and a wee operation or two, and I listened to the most amusing, play most amazing playlist on Spotify called Superjet Robot Dinosaurs. It's my playlist. <laughs> and wore a different band tee every visit, took photos and posted them online. People sent me new teas, concert tickets, and most special of all, their favourite songs for me to listen to. My friend Carl even painted a picture based on some of my favourite songs. It was magic. Last week I was indeed in Tennessee, where I ended up speaking at 10 by 9 Nashville. My talk was called, I Hate Nashville. <laughs> and I wore my Boy Genius t-shirt. And in a coffee shop in Knoxville on our way, the girl behind the counter said, that is the sickest t-shirt. And as she was smiling as she said it, I took this as a compliment and fell, felt about 10 feet tall. My son Jake garnered a strange notoriety at Galway University for quoting Tom Waits in every one of his English and history papers. And I asked him where his love of Tom Waits came from and he said, you used to play Tom Waits Martha all the time in the car and I felt irrationally proud of myself. Our youngest son, Elliot, says his earliest music memory is my soulmate, his mum, threatening to divorce and or murder me if I sang Friendly Fire's Hawaiian Air ever again. Four years ago, I got, I mean, sorry, Santa got two priceless tickets to see Billie Eilish in London, which he gave to our daughter, Robin. I think I was a bigger Billie fan than even she was. She opened the envelope, said, oh my God, Tristan will love these. Tristan being her boyfriend at the time. So I ended up taking the two of them to London to see Billy while I sat in a pub across the road <laughs> with my friend Ronan drinking barely tolerable craft beer. 
a lot of very barely tolerable craft beer. But earlier this month, my soulmate and I went to Electric Picnic in a camper van where we met up with Robin and we saw Billie Eilish together. It was magic. A friend says that my writing reminds him sometimes of Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt wrote this and I wish I had. Music is to me proof of the existence of God. It is so extraordinarily full of magic and in tough times of my life, I can listen to music and it makes such a difference. Hmm, no Taylor Swift on that playlist, Paul? Your loss, my friend, your loss. But thanks for the wonderful story. Brilliant, as always. And if you want to hear about Paul's recent hospital stay, you can listen to Podcast 255 for more. Well, as you should know by now, Tam is always free and always will be. But I just wanted to say a big thank you, as always, to everyone has donated via Patreon over the years. There's a link at the Tambanine website if you're interested. And thanks too to everyone who has given at the live events. You help keep us going and we really appreciate it. Okay, on to our third and final story on this podcast. It comes from the Tambanine regular, Josephine Hassan. I lived the first eight years of my life in a crescent of houses owned by the local council. A mix of two-story and bungalows family homes and pensioner houses. There was a squad of us, probably about eight or ten children, male-dominated. Indeed, myself and Cecilia, who lived around the corner, were the only girls in our gang. We also happened to be the youngest. We would skip down past the house I lived in to the old council play park. Sparky, the collie dog, was owned by one of the families in the Crescent, and he was always in the gang too barking away to our shouts of joy and laughter. The abandoned railway lines ran in the space between our play park and what was Desmond's factory back then. I remember the hum of the factory on the working days. The power generators throbbed and sang like spaceships whirring in the air. This throbbing beat of music hung in the air over us while we got on with our day's play. That railway line had a magnetic fascination for us children. We would search for tadpoles on that abandoned line in the big, enormous holes of water, which our mothers had forbidden us to go anywhere near. Most of the time they didn't know. But when we got found out, it meant a good sally rod around the legs. Red welts would sting through the dirt and the sunburn. But the jars of tadpoles and the multitude of wee froglets a few weeks later made it a worthwhile risk, and a risk which I, in particularly, happily took. I loved frogs, and I often caught a big guy to keep as a pet, much to my mother's revulsion. Daddy would sneak out at night while I was tucked up in bed so that he could release the wee creature, and I would go next morning with a luxury tidbit of food for him only to discover that my pet had disappeared. I was told that Mr Frog had managed to lift the old enamel basin by himself to go home to his froggy family. I believed this. I mean, what can I say? I had a vivid imagination as a child and I idolised my daddy and he would never tell me a lie. 
Daddy kept an immaculate garden, a lawn and flower borders with a neat hedge in the front, and out the back the big garden was given over to well-tended rows of potatoes and carrots, enormous cabbage heads, turnips, and even an exotic marrow or two, because he liked homemade marrow and ginger jam. Mummy had a concrete single-lane path down the middle to allow her access to the clothesline. But the garden was Daddy's domain. And by default, it was mine too, because I shadowed him absolutely everywhere. Back to our gang. It wasn't bad. Bit mischievous. The older boys preyed on the innocence of Cecilia and I. We were five or six years younger than most of them. And when they weren't trying to get rid of us, they used us as goalposts. <laughs> or messengers. But we didn't mind because that made us an important element of the gang. A wee Protestant lady lived next door to us. She was a retired Sunday school teacher. Miss Douglas took a shine to me and taught me the beauty and the friendship of a book and how to read long before I went to primary school. Another old lady lived in a pensioner house opposite us. Her name was Martha. Martha was a witch. The boys told Cecilia and I that she was a witch. Her grey hair was long and unruly, her demeanour bent and crooked. They told us she was a Protestant too. <laughs> we didn't know what that meant, but we nodded our understanding, not wanting them to think that we were stupid. They didn't say it in a way that made being a Protestant sound like it was a bad thing, only that it meant we had to be weary. But I really didn't understand the whispered tones of the boys when they advised this, because Miss Douglas was a Protestant too. Mind you, at that time I didn't even know what a Catholic was either. <laughs> Martha's front garden was overgrown. The boy said this was because all the bones from the creatures she cooked in her big cauldron were hidden in the long grass. And she cast spells on us children using those bones. They would knick-knock her front door and then run to hide behind the big hedge. It was so overgrown it was nearly falling over with the weight of the branches. Martha would open her front door shake her fist out at the world when she realised that there was no visitors on the doorstep and then bang, the door closed again. We were petrified of her. One day, my daddy took his gardening tools with him and he crossed the road. I followed because he usually tidied up another pensioner's garden on that row. He stopped in front of Martha's house pushed back a squealing metal gate and walked in, laying his tools down on the doorstep. I stopped, unwilling to cross the threshold of the covenstead, and I watched as Daddy began working. Wide, sweeping, rhythmic, hypnotic strokes of the scythe slicing through the overgrown grass and brambles. A sharp snip, snip, snip of the manual clippers made them a magician's wand making a beautiful hedge out of the overgrown mess nothing happened then 
So I became a wee bit more brave and I tried to swallow my fear. I couldn't let him down. I was his helper. Usually he chatted to me all the way through any task, telling me what he was doing, asking me about my day at school and chatting about Miss Douglas's big ginger tomcat, whom I loved. But not today. I thought he was maybe feeling the fear a wee bit too, but I still couldn't understand what was driving him to work. And this garden, out of all the gardens he could be in, Surely he knew she was a witch. But as he worked, I settled into my usual sidekick stance and with the rake that was way too big for a five-year-old to be wielding, I did my best to gather up the long grass, the hedge cuttings and the nettles, hoping to God I wouldn't find bones in among them. I almost forgot where I was. Standing at the creaky gate, filling the wheelbarrow with the detritus of Dally's toil, I saw the front door open. Martha stepped out. She fixed her beady eye on my small, skinny form and stared at me. Her hands were behind her back. Her black skirt was long, a pair of black laced-up boots and a baggy old cardigan completed the Wiccan wardrobe. Her right arm came out from behind her back and she raised her crooked hand, pointing a bony finger at me. Come here. I searched my daddy's face for a sign that he was going to protect me, but I was confused by him encouraging me to go to her. I knew instinctively that I wouldn't have the strength to run if she grabbed me to use me in some sacrificial potion that she was cooking up inside. I was ready to take flight, but I couldn't move. Fixed to the big concrete paving slabs I had just been brushing. Leaden legs eventually carried me forward unwillingly. But I was too polite and too obedient a child not to do what I was told. But I made sure I stopped far enough away that she couldn't reach for me. Two steps away from her, my first, my worst fears were realised as her left hand came out from behind her back too. She cackled, unclenched her fist to reveal two fries chocolate cream bars. <laughs> one for you and one for your daddy, says her, as payment toothless smile. The spell of that smile transformed that witch into a kindly old lady. Tom found it. I choked out a thank you. And I can still hear my daddy's big rumble of a laugh from behind me and see the broad smile on his face when I turned round to look at him. He obviously knew the fable of the witch of Mitchell Crescent the witch that all my gang believed in. And I'm sure by Martha's smile and her hearty laugh that she also knew. I learned a valuable lesson that day. I learned that Protestant witches were just like the old Catholic ladies who also lived in the Crescent. (laughs) And they all 
paid for a hard day's work with chocolate bars, biscuits, and sweet tea. I also learned that Martha was not the witch that my friends had made her out to be. I told the gang, and they never knocked her door again. Maybe they were looking for chocolate too, mind you. I had a warm childhood full of sun, laughter, marbles and innocence, warts on hands, brambled hedges, barbed wire fences, ripped dresses, frogs, big pink flannel bloomers on clotheslines, penny chews stuck in her teeth, tongues ebony with blackjack dye. The smell of two-stroke engine fumes still summoned the Mr. Softy ice cream van jingle from my deepest memory. It was the late 60s and the early 70s, and we were the children of Mitchell Crescent and Mitchell Park in Dungiven. There was no health and safety laws, no soft surfacing, no suing the council for scuffed knees and splinters. We were happy, healthy and pure in our pursuit of fun. No fears, no worries, not a care in the world, and no witches. Thank you so much, Joe. Growing up in Dungiven, witches should have been the least of your worries, as we said. I love Dungiven, really, Josephine, especially now they've built the bypass. Thank you so much. What a wonderful evocation of a 1970s childhood. And that's it for this podcast. Check out all the upcoming dates on our website, 10by9.com. And be sure to keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where I'll keep you up to date with any news. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen, especially Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory and Chris O'Donoghue. Thanks to the beautiful people of the Black Box and our amazing and supportive audience. You are truly a blessing. Thanks to all our storytellers, of course, but the biggest thanks this week goes to Rachel Woods, Paul Bond and Josephine Hassan. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.